welcome to Agribusiness Conversations. This is Amber Morin, your host. Today's episode is brought to you by Western Ag Life Media and Magazine, where they publicize and promote agriculture in the Southwest. I hope you enjoy today's podcast, where we're talking everything chickens, and we have some special recipes to share with you and an incredible family to introduce to you. Everyone, I am so excited today to have Charmin Hickman, Gertie Hickman, and Bill Sr. Hickman with me today to talk about Hickman's family farm and what they do and how long they've been around. They've been around for generations here in Arizona. Your story began back in the 1940s because of a woman named Nell Hickman. How did her and her family end up here in Arizona and how'd she start selling eggs? We moved to Arizona from Kansas. In Kansas, we had a small farm and had chickens on it. And so my dad decided to move the family to Arizona in 1938. And in 1944, we moved to a little farm in Glendale. He worked all the time in construction. He got my mother a couple dozen laying hens because she's always wanted more chickens so and that was the start of this family farms today with a couple dozen laying hens she began to sell eggs to other neighbors and relatives that we had and the flock kept growing and it got up to about 500 and Gertie and I got married in 1957. I asked her would she mind and get into the chicken business. So we started with 500 baby chicks, and I worked at a service station, and she raised the chicks, and we started our partnership with my parents. So we kept growing until I had to quit my job because it got to be too much for the two women to take care of. If you're not growing, you go backwards. So we're still on that mode of growing. Now we have capacity for about 10 million land hens. There's been a lot of history in between, but Mount, our children, and three of our grandchildren is in responsible positions in the farm. Our children run all, we have five, four of them runs and owns the farms. We have farms now in four here in Arizona, two in Colorado, one in California. So, and a big share of our market is in California. Bill, thank you for that background. It's amazing to think that just a few laying hens became an amazing company ran by an amazing family. And I know there's a lot of hard work that goes into agriculture. So thank you for that background. And it's impressive that all the succession planning that you guys have been able to do because so many family farms and ranches really struggle with that. And it's really great to see that everything is still a part of the family. The family is still really integrated into the family business. So I love hearing that. Now, Gertie, you began your partnership with Nell in the 1950s. 
And I'm really curious, what were your initial thoughts about going into the chicken business? Well, I come from a family that was always involved in being in the retail end of, of business. My father had three clothing stores, Glendale, Peoria, and Tolleson. So it wasn't a big adventure to me as far as going out on your own and selling whatever your product was. So when Bill said we're going into the chicken business, I thought, well, that's fine. I don't know anything about chickens, but anyway, I can uh, gather eggs, which I did end up doing quite a bit of it. But <laughs> anyway, uh, Bill said we started with 500 baby chicks. Well, they were starting to come into production when his parents went back to visit family and friends in Kansas and have a vacation. So they only owned a pickup and we had a little 56 Ford Victoria two-door. And so they took the car and left us the pickup. And during that time where we were selling our extra eggs to said all of your eggs or none of them. And we'd already started selling to some little mom and dad restaurants and grocery stores. So I just made the proposition up there. Hey, since we have to do something with them. We'll just start egg route. And I called different people in Glendale. I had worked in my dad's store and knew who was a good credit risk and who weren't because he had charge accounts and I used to send monthly statements out. So I sat down with a friend of Bill's. He had a large extended family, aunts and so forth, uh, cousins in Glendale. And we went through the phone book and marked off names. And I told him I'd be in Tuesday with Frey Figs from the farm. And were they interested? So I ended up playing three days a week. And it was just a natural thing to hit the streets and move the product. And at that time, it was Collateral 19. So... You could tell when you were getting an egg customer because you could hear a car swimming down. So anyway, I took off three days a week and sold eggs door to door and paid the feed bill on Friday afternoon so they would send us feed on Monday morning for the birds. So that's kind of a quickie thing, I guess, to <laughs> say, but... But it took a lot of effort and so forth. And then we started raising a family and I retired from the routes, but I still help whenever possible in any way possible. I vaccinated chickens. I have moved baby chicks to a grow house and from a grow house into a laying house. And, you know, you just take the best care of them they can because they have to be watched and taken care of or you don't get eggs and you don't have any way to make a living. Absolutely, Gertie. And I think hard work always pays off. And it sounds like you have an amazing work ethic and you're not afraid of sales. Now, did you ever expect to one day own millions of laying hens starting with just 500? What has been some of the biggest surprises for you? I think the biggest surprises are the advances that we have made in taking care of the birds. One of the first things was going into the cages and getting them up off the ground and being able to get fresh water to all of them and have their feed, you know, nice and clean and so forth. And the eggs rolled away from the chickens and it was easier to gather the eggs. And then along came the 
aid carts and the gathering carts and now everything is so much easier. The egg gathering belts, I just think those are, things are wonderful. When you've lifted up a few baskets with several dozen eggs in them, you realize how many uh, pounds toward the end of the day that you've been lifting up. And that even makes you even more tired. <laughs> and how far you've walked. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a feeling that all the members of your family know a thing or two about how much eggs weigh when you have to pick them up. So I am curious, as a company and as a family business, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you guys have faced? And you guys outgrew that back porch sales. Was that fairly quickly? Oh, yeah. We outgrew that very quickly, like you said. Bill's mother used to put eggs in different boxes. So the pet milk boxes were the sturdiest ones. So those are the ones that we brought home from the grocery store to put the loose eggs in. And then we had ladies who came with their mixing bowls, paper bags, used cartons, whatever. And we would pack the loose eggs into those cartons or convenience mixing bowls. And, you know, every lady has a favorite mixing bowl that she does one thing or the other in, and it's reserved for that one chore, and especially during those days. And I really think the packaging has saved a lot as far as the production. And the mess is in the refrigerator. When someone breaks an egg, all the eggs in it get wet too. So, <laughs> and that has happened. But I think all of the industry has seen such an advancement from the egg getting belts to the packaging to the transportation of them. And it's a brand new world as far as Bill and me are concerned and have seen the strides forward in it. Now, I'm curious, especially for us native Arizonans, what were some of the first grocery stores and restaurants that you sold to that sort of bring back um, some really fond memories for you? I had two very special ladies. One was Dorothy Eaton. She had the Top Hat Cafe on Grand Avenue in Glendale. And then Ola Gatley, she was a Glendale resident. She and her husband, Bill, had Peoria Cafe, and it was also located on Grand Avenue. And these two women were so kind and understanding. They'd worked all their lives, and they saw us struggling along. It was the only way we knew to make a living. And they would refer us to their bread man, their milk man, anybody that delivered anything to their restaurants, they would tell them, hey, these two kids really got good eggs. So that in itself got our name out. And the guys that went in for lunch, if they ordered something egg, like an egg salad sandwich or something, they would tell them, well, these eggs came from the Hickman farm out on lateral 19. And we started selling to the different milk delivery drivers. We had Kruft Dairy, Shamrock, Carnation, can't think of all of them. But anyway, those fellows also helped and one would tell another driver, get these eggs on your truck. They're really good and fresh and so forth. So we even had some of those guys coming out to the ranch to pick them up. And then there would be pickup points at different places in Phoenix where our driver would stop and the guys would come and get their eggs from him. 
Gertie, I love hearing that because I think sometimes when anyone is starting out, there's always that idea that it's going to happen fast. And it took a lot of work and a lot of energy to get to where your family business is at today. And also a strong community that really got behind you guys. And so it's just, it's a good story to tell. Sharman, you grew up in the family business, and I am curious what some of your earliest responsibilities were, and then how has your role changed over the years? Amber, that's funny. I'm glad my brothers aren't here, but I was not as strong as they were. So when the birds would come in, and that was at four in the morning, and my mom did not tell you that she was also the cook for all my brother's high school friends that would come over spend the night in the middle of the family room floor so they could be woken up at 3.34 in the morning, eat light. Then when they were done, some of them swooped back in to get the biscuits and gravy rolled up in a tortilla and then catch that bus. But there were station wagons and vans moving Peoria High School students back to school. Many of them were blue gold jackets, the FFA, our oldest brother. We tried to find his jacket for the last blue gold gala and we can't find it, but I'm sure we will locate it soon. But I was too small to move the rack, so we had to walk the chickens when they would end their career at Hickman's. We would put them back on chicken trucks because they used to sell them the Campbell soup. They would drop some of those chickens, and our dad would have Clint and I go underneath the semi-trailer and pick up chickens and bring them back. We were small and wiry, and we could get in between and then bring a chicken and put her back so she could go join her friends. And we were in charge of placing the rack in the houses. So as the guys were finished stuffing birds or removing them, we would take empty racks back and down 540 feet of cement aisle. That's a little bit wrong. That's why I have dad hair because I'm going to make my job seem really hard. So as a seven-year-old, it felt like 540 feet. So then we graduated into hand gathering before the technology of the conveyor systems and inline. Of course, we started on both ends and we ended up in the middle and several chunks of hair, uh, scratches and everything. And I'm not talking about the chickens. And I ended up being sent to the processing plant. So I got what I wanted and Clint had to stay in the chicken house cleaning manure and gathering eggs until he graduated U of A. I got to go into the processing plant, learn how to process eggs, and then work in the egg store, learn how to talk to customers, making change, and then calling orders and writing out invoices. Because at that time, in the early 80s, there were no computer-generated invoices, so I would write out invoices for all of the trucks late at night after I got back from school and sports. So that was my training before I got to go to school and learn how to do it. Nice. That was your journey. So when you say you got into the processing of the eggs, what were some of the things that you guys did then versus now to keep eggs fresh as they're being delivered to the it was different because we didn't have the inline houses. Now all the houses are sealed. Those eggs go onto conveyors. No human hand touches those eggs unless they're physically being discarded from a place where they shouldn't be. So hand gathering, transferring them in power carts from the chicken house to the coolers. But we gathered every day. We did not ever let those eggs sit. And to this day, that transforms into those eggs are laid, they're rolled onto the conveyor belt, they converge onto one main conveyor, 
and they go right into processing that goes 365 days a year for 10-hour shifts. So now we have the capability to do chillers, but they're so warm from the hen that we have to actually temper them in our chillers so that when they do get inspected, they're at the food safety temperature, which is your standard refrigerator at home or the walk-in in the grocery store. So it has to be below 45 degrees. Now we've converted to as much automation as possible. And where we used to hand candle, my mother started out hand candling with a little candling light. Then we went to our machines and they, the eggs were rolled or carried over a light with a person looking down through the uh, the light shining from the bottom and a person looking at them in a booth where the eggs went through. Now we have a automatic candling that's done by electronics and it's much more efficient. It gets everything. We used to have to depend on a person to make a decision if that egg had any a blood spot or a crack in it. And we have what they call a blood detector. And then we have a crack detector and the machine as the eggs travel over it. We have the, where the eggs are packed. We have automatic packers. No one ever touches that egg, even the carton. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to get that across. Like our dad said, that technology goes so fast. And when they started, it was a big deal when we got the 50 case an hour machine. And then as technology started being available for the egg industry, they kept on upgrading and upgrading. And then when we hit the 1 million mark of chickens, our brother Glenn will say, the technology and efficiency enabled us you know, what started in 1944 to the time we hit a million in 2000, there was one year where we added a million chickens in a year. And so the technology and efficiency that we are able to utilize has really catapulted our ability to expand. While we're still keeping what our grandma wanted to always do is make sure that friends and neighbors were getting the freshest eggs possible. They're still the freshest eggs, but as you know, consumer opinion and public opinion has changed when they started. You can see some of those vintage pictures that they have a little egg store in 67th and Missouri, and a product feature is that they're cage laid. And we all got trained by Dr. Sarah Shields, and it was that important to our brother that cares for the flock to say, we have to make this transition, but we have to make it in a science-based manner. So they paid Dr. Shields to come where we walked you through a day in the life of a hen. And she is a specialist in their behavior. And what she told all of us was when you remove the animal's natural abilities to do something, you're going to cause aggression and frustration. That's what we don't need. And she had a lot of blank stares because you know, our granddad saw the benefit of putting those chickens in the cages as well as our parents. But you cannot tell the consumers it's good when they have a feeling that it's not. And when that feeling pressures the largest users of eggs in the United States, which are your McDonald's and your Kroger's and your Walmart's 
and you are told when you've got the size that we do, you will not sell to us. We found a way to make a cage free in the best way possible. So we're going back to what our granddad started, but we're offering the best possible life to that hen in a science-based manner by experts. All of our hen staff are trained. We start the day and saying, how are we gonna do better today? And how are we gonna do better tomorrow? And I think that's why our brand is a very powerful presence on the shelf. Absolutely. How do you keep hens from being aggressive with each other? Can you speak to that a little bit? I have just been the observer in this. Our nephew, Brett, has been on the front end of transitioning these birds. And remember, the genetics and the ancestry of these birds have been in my brother's wheelhouse since he started taking care of our hens. And Billy has worked with our veterinarians, our nutritionists. They sourced from the least genetically high-strung families and most efficient laying hens. And it is an entire science and professionals make their living at this. We have provided everything within her environment, adding the novelty, making sure she's trained on how to perch, making sure she knows where to cover her little private nesting area so she can Mm -hmm. lay her eggs. They put in those nesting curtains and they are doing nothing but trying to make sure that that environment, because as you know, with expanded territory comes aggression and and certain things and an alpha hen can emerge at any time. But we have cameras and videos and we monitor their food, their water, their production. There are people in the house all the time. This has raised the need for more staff in the house because visual inspection, there's nothing that beats that. Any doctor will tell you that. How does the patient look? Visual assessment can tell you so much about those who you're caring for. When we begin to switch over to the cage-free, we tried the same breed of chicken that we've been uh, using in the cages. And over the years, the genetics had changed so that the chickens that were in the cages, they were bred more or less, you might say, their environment was the cage. But whenever we switched, we found out that we could not use that chicken because she was just not didn't know what to do with her freedom. They might say couldn't function, and the employees was really having problems. We've since changed the different breeds. It's a whole different environment in that chicken house. When you raise the chickens, you have to bring even in the well in the cages especially they're in position that you have to bring their environment to them towards the lighting the cooling we don't have to heat because there's enough birds to generate the heat and also the employees that take care of them because after all you can't expect somebody to take care of the birds 
when they're always on guard about one of them attacking or something, flying into them. I don't think we have the conversations about agriculture enough and how much effort and time and energy and science and really care at the end of the day goes into food production. So Charmin, you know, with your role as the community outreach director, what have been some of your biggest accomplishments to help showcase and really grow the family business? Well, our community outreach wouldn't happen without loyal customers picking up the Hickman brand. Because when they do that, that's the margin that we rely on to give back to our communities. And we strive to do it in every community that you see the ability to buy a Hickman egg. So that includes Hawaii. And I think two of the biggest things that we try and concentrate on outside of our hens and our humans at Hickman's is to partner with local schools and educating. Because right now what you're seeing is a lot of people in the stores because of this COVID-19 are stockpiling on base products. The average person didn't know what we were doing and doesn't know where their food comes from because we are the ones that feed the United States, the American Mm -hmm. farmer. So you don't really need to stockpile too much because right now, unless they close product moving from farms to grocery chain warehouses, we're going to be probably better set than all of the other countries because we can feed ourselves. And I think that the public doesn't know about that. They're going to find out because I think we're at the tip of it. We were just in the grocery stores this week and it went from a calm to I've never seen that many grocery store carts lined up. When's the last time you went into a grocery store and you saw every single register running? Even the Walmarts, they are all full and you're seeing out of stocks on the shelf. But I think that we need to do all we can to partner with schools to provide this information and that technology plays a huge role. I know that everybody likes to think that a farmer is sitting in an overall and petting a chicken and milking a cow. And yes, we want them to think that, but boy, that cow relies on a robot to milk and there's a lot of technology and conveyors and efficiencies and science that would rival some of the tech industries. And you and I know that, but we need to do our job to get boots on the ground partnering with our education systems. I love the community outreach you guys do. I know that you've done lots of partnerships and reached out to thousands of students, which is just amazing. And you guys really give back in a big way. So what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've noticed? There's any specific question that you run into that maybe students or the general public just asks that is sort of a commonly asked question that you guys get? If you were in your kindergarten class, it's taking you back to when your teacher asked, what do you want to be when you grow up or at a career day? And the standard thing is the police, the nurse, the doctor, the fireman. Yeah. Who said a farmer? And then who said an egg farmer? I never heard it. And I was an egg farmer. So (laughs) labor has always been a problem. And now we're 30 years into an inmate program. And we, they weren't taking the place of anybody. A robot stands in the place where we couldn't find any humans and they will never pay for themselves, but we need to get food to market. And the president of the company will be quite honest. Those robots never replaced a human. It was out of necessity. So when we rely on incarcerated individuals and give them the tools so that when they do get released, they are moving forward with their lives, reuniting with families and enriching our communities. 
and pushed in a grocery cart or clicking at home to pay for groceries and spending money in our restaurants. And that has really been pivotal to us being able to keep our lights on and producing products. Labor has been a huge issue and, you know, regulation and water and no one wants a large operation that's actively providing food. We have to supply product to our regular customers that make it possible to do that. Mm-hmm. So it, we can't just say, hey, we sold it all at a farmer's market. Uh, you retailers can wait Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday because keep in mind, we also do it efficiently and responsibly with diverting all the things that we can from landfills and repurposing our used plastics into containers. So consumers are helping the environment. Our plastic containers that are pet are available in Walgreens, CVS. So you don't have to go to a designer boutique store. Right. Well, and Charmin, I think that one of the things that you definitely bring to light is the labor shortage is all across agriculture. And I think it's a wonderful thing that you guys have been able to really make that partnership and have inmates work at your farm and really come back and reduce that recidivism because there's not a lot of companies and there are challenges for people that are trying to integrate back into society. So thank you for touching base on that conversation that we had prior to starting the recording, which I think is valuable and worth having for any one of you that will really want to jump in and answer this is when before I started recording, I asked if you guys would like to be called a farm or a ranch. And there was a reason that you stuck with farm. And so I'd love to hear that reason and allow the audience to hear that as well. After we uh, began to uh, grow, we needed a corporate name. And we'd always gone by a farm out here in uh, in the West. Everything is ranch. It's 10 acres. You got a ranch. So that's one of the reasons we started off that way. And then after we grew, decided that we'll sound more as a family. We've been doing everything we could to be accepted to the community. Even though, you know, someone living next to a chicken farm is not too happy at times. So anyway, we just uh, replaced, really, and Charmin decided that we should go as a family. But by that time, it was too expensive to change the name. So we just, we doing business as Hickman Family Farms. Behind all of these agriculture operations, it's a family that started it. It's family that's still managing it. And I've been very impressed that you guys have been able to have that succession planning in place and really stay in it for, are you guys on your fourth or fifth generation now of managers in the company? The three nephews are fourth generation. That's amazing. And they're all, yeah, positions of management and they've done their time and in school, got out in the public to see how other companies work and then brought back that knowledge to try and get the third generation thinking outside the box. And they are the millennials. They're a classic millennial. And I hate to always bash millennials because the people that we work with are our nephews and all of the staff that we work with, they're incredible. And they still take pride in the fact that they're the 1% providing food for the 99%. So Mm -hmm. they just have different ways, just like Brandon wanted to do 100% pet containers. So Not only is that good for the environment, it's good for us because we'd like to be able to provide our 
customers with a very responsible package. Mm-hmm. So when you can go farther up in integrating your supply chains, you have more control. And we don't want to be crippled by a supplier that said we had a better customer offer than you guys. The larger we became, we decided that we need to integrate just as much as we possibly could. So we have our own feed mill, and that feeds all the chickens and the baby chicks, everything. We grow our own birds. Where we used to during the years, where we bought feed, bought chick, bought baby chicks, and, and had them grown by other growers. But now we get we get bigger, and we for one thing we try to take advantage of all the waste streams and the grandchildren. Each one has a real responsible part of the business. She mentioned Brandon. And he takes care of ordering all the packaging material as a warehouse for here in Arizona and also in Colorado. Grant is another grandchild. He has a protein plant on one of the farms, and that's where we take care of one of the old hens are through their productive life. Brad is another one, and he's concentrating on the remodel of the houses through cage-free systems, which is a real job. We have a plant for processing the manure into fertilizer. All of that goes to organic farms. What we're trying to do is take advantage of all the waste streams. I do have a question for really any of you that want to take this. What advice would you give to any young men and women looking to start their own agribusiness venture? And what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received as it relates to your business? I remember we were getting awarded the Albertson business. We were pretty lucky because finally got big enough for batches in 1993, August uh, 28th. That was the first truckload of eggs. And we were feeling pretty good. And then my our brother said, you got to go meet with the Albertsons buyer because we got Albertsons. And that was April of 2005. And during that time, we had always just taken for granted that the Hispanic markets liked us. And Southwest Supermarket was one of the first on the scene. And they used a bunch of eggs by the pallet. And they were, you know, Central Phoenix, South Phoenix, some of the original Tolleson, South Phoenix locations. And those people eat eggs. They are a target customer for us. And we were feeling pretty good. And Glenn said, hey, the Southwest buyer needs to talk to you guys. So he sent the salesperson that specialized in retail and myself. And he sat us down. The original owner, Mike Peterson, had sold to this new company. Within the very same week we got Alberton, we lost Southwest Supermarket. And I had to go back to my family and tell them that. And the Albertsons buyers came in. There were two buyers. They came in from Boise, Idaho. And we had to meet with Shamrock and them to tell them how we were going to, you know, handle their customers. And my brother couldn't be with me. So it was Shamrock Foods and myself. And he said, well, aren't you excited? And I said, I don't know that we got ahead. I'm so excited and we appreciate you guys. You're our first regional grocery chain. 
And he said, well, what's wrong? And they said, well, we lost Southwest Supermarket. And they're our biggest individual drops outside of Costco. That's our biggest retail account. And he said, what happened? And they said, oh, I don't know. You know, we we do the merchandise sets. We order. We maintain inventory. We make sure that they're the freshest. We have people that go and hang tags. And we, we basically promise the world at the least cost. And that's how we've always done it. And he said, and what'd they do? And I said, they told us no. And they did just cancel. You guys are out of here next week. And he said, it was Gary Rathbone. He goes, will you let your family know that as a buyer, and I've been doing this for a long time, when the deal is too good to be true, it's not. And that company folded within about a year of that new company taking over. They're Southwest supermarkets with that company ran them into the ground. And you can't tell me that that concept is not a draw because Food City and Ranch Markets and El Super, you go by their grocery stores and they are packed. It wasn't the concept. It was the mismanagement of a company that started out strong. So I always think of my brothers are standing back as they're passing the baton, but you have to build your team strong enough so that the next generation can move the ball forward. And I think that that and being good neighbors and helping others is a big deal. And we've been a good neighbor everywhere we've planted. As they move us farther and farther out, some of our coolest neighbors have a lot of cows. Our parents sacrificed so that we could get here, and now it's our job to sacrifice. So we can help our kids keep the fire burning. When we first started, every poultry farm, they produce eggs, send them to a company to process them, and they would then pay the farmer whatever the, what they said the market was. I watched my mother, she had a few extra eggs, and she was having to uh, sell them to a peddler, and I just, he said, well, whatever we're going to do, we're going to sell our own eggs. And we always did that. And we're different than the traditional farm and sold our own eggs. And that's created really a, a wonderful brand and name recognition. When you deal with the chains, the big buyers, uh, invariably, they want their own brand. I understand that because they don't want to be tied to somebody but they've almost forced them. A lot of them will contract by the year. So it's, it's a real business. And when you said what you would advise somebody, mm-hmm. my advice is they better have a business background or be fooling the business. A lot of things can go wrong. What has been sort of a shining business decision that you've made that you're really proud of? Probably the fact that we were able to go through the ups and downs long enough and hang on tight enough that now the kids have to worry about it. I like that. I think a lot of agriculture businesses would like to be in those shoes where their kids can worry about it because at the end of the day, it's a real privilege and an honor to be that next generation's. I love that answer. Well, if you're in the egg business, there's an egg market established that we all go by. So we all sell somewhere on the same market. So the deal is the way you beat your competition, and that's the most important thing, is to be more efficient. Because if you're more efficient, 
and you're selling the same market, that means you're going to do better. Do you see a better way to do something when you try to do it? So, Sharman, this question's for you. What has been your favorite part about being someone that's been able to grow up in the industry and really an integral player in the family farm? Our team at Hickman, they're proud of the things that we do out in the community, and it means a lot to them. They keep the eggs rolling and chickens fed and cared for. And then my brother has put on at every scan in, we don't punch a clock anymore, you scan in this screens called Billy Vision, and it <laughs> highlights some of the things that are going on, new babies that are born, graduations, marriages, wedding anniversaries, things that we're doing in the community, and the fact that some of our entry-level employees that come out from Labor Express, so it, uh, we stay within the immigration guidelines, the people that are not incarcerated, use Labor Express. My brother found out that they were not eating. There were some kids behind the building waiting for that van to take them out to the farms to work. And so Billy went out, he got a food trailer. It was the same food trailer that fed a lot of uh, politicians at one of my brother's events. But that food truck puts an incredible breakfast out so that our labor, that they move all day long. Some of them log in 30 miles of walking every day they can get a free breakfast and she changes it up. It's not always a breakfast burrito. She likes to have a little variety and she tries to give them a variety, but they get a free hot breakfast before they start their shift. And he wants to make sure that they were not only getting fed, but something very nutritious. Just like that we take care of our chickens, we're going to take care of our staff. So until they can get up the career ladder, we're going to make sure that they have what they need to start out their work day with energy. And and that also, when we're delivering pallets of eggs to combat hunger in our community, those eggs are freshly laid to stop hunger or to relieve hunger in our communities. One of the things that you brought up earlier, Sharman, is that people are actually out at grocery stores purchasing foodstuffs and commodities that maybe they haven't bought before because they're sort of preparing for that social isolation that has been recommended. And I have a sort of a lighthearted question for you. Do you have a favorite recipe that you would like to share? Maybe you have a secret family recipe that people could cook while they're actually staying at home and cooking right now. My dad, if you don't have deviled eggs, he will let you know to go ahead and rearrange your schedule because if we're going to have a family meal, there should be deviled eggs. The secret sauce is my mom's deviled egg recipe, only I throw cayenne pepper. It's mayonnaise, a little bit of mustard, cayenne pepper, and lime juice. And as you know, at events, I just let those people go ahead and take the squirt bottle home with them. And they think they've won the lottery put that on the hard-cooked eggs and put them on a skewer or a lollipop stick, so we called it egg pops. Secret sauce, but we'll share it. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was actually going to get it out of you, but I thank you for sharing, Charmin. All right, so sort of a final question, and this, guys, I've enjoyed this so much. It's been such a fun conversation. 
Is there anything that we have may have missed that you would like the audience to know, whether it's about the family business, you guys personally, or even as they're at home cooking? You know, Amber, since we're on that topic of the COVID, the closest thing I can liken this to is when we had the egg recall. We're not experiencing the supply channels. I mean, we went to code red pretty quick and we were we were long on inventories before. But like my dad said, those big retailers want to put everything in private label. And my brothers were reached out to because they noticed when the stockpiling thing started happening and, and it was reported about the toilet paper. Well, in Kirkland, Washington, that is the base of Costco. And they found out that the only stores that were not having out of stocks were Arizona, California, and Fata. And they traced it back to the only ones that weren't out of stock. Guess which company came up? Costco. Just before I came over here to visit my parents and talk to you, Glenn sent out a company-wide email saying that the Costco buyer said to all of the Hickman team, thank you for keeping their stores full of eggs. So this might be a uh, silver lining in some of this stuff it might be for farmers that put their names on what they're proud that they produce. It brings to light that at the end of the day, when there is a crisis, farmers and ranchers are still out there feeding the country and allowing people to self-isolate and take care of themselves the way that they need to. So thank you guys for doing what you're doing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you much. <laughs> Best way for people to find you besides in the supermarket would be? On our social platforms where our Twitter's at Hickman's Egg, Hickman's Family Farms on Instagram, Hickman's Family Farms on Facebook. We do not have a Snap or a TikTok. I think we're just about done. We very rarely get on Twitter. We leave that to the uh, the rest of the world, but we're active on our Facebook and we just hit 5,000. So we're really proud of that. We were right underneath that 4,800 for a long time and we had a couple breakfasts and some great posts and we hit 5,000 and we're moving the other way. Fantastic. Well, thank you all. I've really enjoyed this. This has been such a fun conversation. All right, everyone, that wraps up this episode of Agribusiness Conversations. I sure hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you get out there and make some of that secret sauce that Charmin was talking about. If you haven't had it yet, you're truly missing out. And it will make social isolation and social distancing just a little bit better. Take care and have a good one.